This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of poisoning and child murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It's been said that when the mighty fall, the weak feel the rumble. In some cases, however, the demise of upstanding figures can cause far more than shaky grounds. For instance, when 44-year-old Deborah Green's world came crashing down, she brought her family into outright devastation. In the decades prior, Deborah had exhausted all pathways to her perfectionist goals. She dedicated hours to the advancement of her medical qualifications, only to come up short as she did her best to raise her children too. But even showing up for her kids proved difficult. Nothing ever seemed to meet the mark, sparking resentment in Deborah. And eventually, it all became too great to bear. Deborah Green, once a warm mother striving to succeed as a doctor, became a monster who would make everyone pay the price of her lost dream. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be here today to assist Alistair in providing medical insight into our final episode of Dr. Deborah Green's fiery and tragic story. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Deborah Green, an oncologist from Kansas City, Missouri, who poisoned her husband and killed two of her own children. Last week, we explored Deborah's past, her struggle to gain qualifications as a doctor, and her ruthless pursuit of perfection and the American dream. This week, we'll dive into Deborah's most heinous acts. A cold wind blew through the upscale suburb of Prairie Village, just outside of Kansas City, Kansas. On October 24, 1995, just past midnight, an unnatural glow slowly rose from down the street. Soon, the smell of smoke followed the wind, waking up the neighborhood. The roar of flames and muffled screams echoed across the community. The desperate cries of Deborah Green's children. Miles away, emergency operators received a hang-up call from a house in Prairie Village. They dispatched police and fire crews. When first responders arrived, they found Deborah Green standing quietly in front of her house beside her eldest daughter. Flames towered behind her, demolishing her home. Yet somehow, according to witness accounts, Deborah didn't show any sense of urgency or fear for her two children who hadn't yet made it out of the house. And when authorities inquired, she certainly didn't admit that she was the one who set the blaze. But Deborah's tight-lipped response didn't take her far. Within days, she became the prime suspect in her children's deaths. This wasn't the first time she endangered her family. Two months before, in mid-August of 1995, Deborah Green had attempted to kill her husband, Michael Farrar. In the days that followed a family trip to Peru, Mike revealed some heavy information. After 16 years of marriage, he wanted a divorce. It was the second time in two years he'd asked for one. But after Deborah ran a campaign against Mike with her own children, Mike backtracked and decided to try and make things work with his wife. Around the same time, Deborah quit her job as a doctor to work from home and care for her children. This wasn't necessarily what she wanted for herself, but it's possible she saw it as a way to show Mike she was trying to make things work with him. Unfortunately, this was unfruitful because Deborah couldn't hold back her selfish outbursts. These fits may have been Deborah's way of retaliating against the life she'd been forced to sustain. Nevertheless, in the weeks that followed Mike's second request for a divorce, Deborah seemed to grow increasingly out of touch with reality. In one instance, Mike received a worrying call from his children. They told him their mum was acting weird. So Mike rushed home only to find multiple empty liquor bottles. After taking the children to their aunts, he returned home, though there was no sign of his wife. He searched everywhere, but Deborah had vanished. Hours later, Mike's phone rang. It was Deborah, but she wouldn't tell him where she was. Accepting that she was safe somewhere, he stopped looking. 
It wasn't until the next day that she appeared in the house again. Though Mike may have seen the impending divorce as an opportunity for Deborah to clean up her act, the marital fallout wasn't exactly a positive catalyst for her. Instead, Deborah nursed a violent rage with plans to make Mike pay for the humiliation she felt. Deborah ground up castor beans to put in Mike's food. Castor beans contain ricin, and if ingested in excess, ricin can cause a wide range of uncomfortable symptoms before ultimately killing a person. As a result of Mike's ricin poisoning, he would have likely been experiencing horrible stomach pain, cramping, nausea, and an intense overall feeling of weakness and fatigue. This painful stomach reaction is caused by the ricin killing off intestinal cells, causing considerable inflammation that results in intense bowel spasms. This spasming of the gut then induces vomiting and diarrhea, which creates severe dehydration from fluid loss. As the body tries to rid this poison by evacuating its fluids, blood pressure quickly drops, which causes severe weakness from the resulting low blood volume and the loss of electrolytes that accompanies this purging. Typically, when ricin is ingested, it takes about 6 to 12 hours for these symptoms to become apparent. There's no question that this type of poisoning would have caused extreme discomfort for Mike. For several days, Mike thought he could withstand the pain. He considered going to the doctor, but he decided to wait it out and see if his symptoms improved. He was a doctor himself. He knew what to keep an eye out for. Unfortunately, he wasn't keeping an eye on his wife, Deborah. She continued adding crushed up castor beans to his food, despite his complaints of painful symptoms. On August 18th, 1995, Mike's pain finally became unbearable. He went to the local hospital in the hopes that they could determine what was ailing him. But doctors struggled to identify the source of his health emergency. Given Mike's recent travels to Peru, his tending physicians later suggested it might be some form of food poisoning or allergy. Others thought his symptoms were a sign of either typhoid fever or tropical sprue, a rare digestive disease. Mike's rice and poisoning likely resulted in severe stomach pain, but that can be an indicator for a wide range of conditions. Diagnosing abdominal pain can be really difficult, especially because the specific discomfort can be anywhere in the abdomen or pelvic region and can even frequently change locations. There are also a bunch of organs in the abdomen, aside from the intestines, like the liver, spleen, bladder, pancreas, gallbladder, and kidneys. The kinds of pains associated with these organs have their own nuances, but the characteristics and symptoms often overlap, which can make establishing a diagnosis difficult. Abdominal pain can also be hard to diagnose because the stomach shares common nerve groupings with the heart. So sometimes gastrointestinal issues can actually be perceived as chest pain. When the source of these pains put doctors at a loss, they can perform more targeted blood tests that screen for poisons or uncommon infections. There are even specialized imaging studies that can be used to isolate the origins of the pain syndrome. If all else fails, doctors can use a laparoscope, which is a tiny thin tube with a small camera tip at its end. 
The laparoscope is inserted through a small incision in the abdominal wall that allows doctors to look around and directly identify what's causing the pain. Given the numerous possibilities of what could have been ailing Mike, doctors weren't able to quickly get to the root of the problem. Even though Mike wasn't effectively diagnosed, his time at the hospital did afford him one thing, a break from the poisoned food Deborah had been feeding him. In the days that followed his admission to the hospital, Mike slowly recovered to Deborah's dismay. Still, Mike remained completely unaware of Deborah's intentions. If anything, his health scare forced him to rely on her even more. And when he left the hospital shaken on August 25th, he readily allowed her to care for him. Despite his intent to get a divorce, he figured he should stay with Deborah and his children while his condition remained in question. Unfortunately, this was the worst decision he could have made. Deborah played up the role of caring housewife, tending to Mike's bedside and providing him home-cooked meals. But much like Deborah's seemingly pure intentions, the food she served him was tainted. Almost immediately after eating it, Mike's symptoms got worse. Soon, the pain in his gut was so immense, he headed back to the hospital. Doctors were mystified by Mike's symptoms, and the fact that he'd been admitted a second time was concerning. But none of them opted to run a test to detect potential ricin poisoning. Doctors can only work with the information they're given. In Mike's case, it seems like everyone was completely stumped. There are a couple ways doctors can test for ricin poisoning, but they'd really only feel the need to do so with the presence of a host of initial indicators and if there were no other obvious culprits. Investigating the ricin poisoning possibly would have been a good idea, but maybe the medical staff was too fixated on Mike's trip to Peru to seek other diagnostic avenues. For a doctor to suspect ricin poisoning, they'd first have to notice abnormally high liver enzymes in the blood. They would also need to observe a progressive worsening in kidney function, which can be seen through blood and urine analysis. In addition, an exposed patient's blood would have an elevated white blood cell count, two to five times higher than normal, indicating that the immune system is trying hard to fight off an intruder. If all of these biomarkers were positive, along with the obvious symptoms that accompany ricin poisoning, it would be of crucial importance to administer targeted exposure tests. One of these would be a blood exam that specifically highlights the DNA of the gene that produces the ricin protein, ricinine. The other would be a targeted analysis of blood and urine, looking for ricinine antibodies, which can only be created by an exposure to ricin. Together, these two tests would establish whether or not someone had been exposed to ricin and how much of an exposure the patient had. While Mike's doctors were highly qualified and could have easily conducted these tests, it was probably the last thing they suspected. They had no idea he'd ingested castor beans, as this is an extremely rare cause of abdominal pain. So, even after doctors discharged Mike from the hospital for a second time, on August 30th, 1995, not one knew what ailed him. 
But one doctor did know. And despite Mike's second recovery from the ricin poisoning, she wasn't about to give up her gig. For the third time, Deborah poisoned Mike's food with crushed castor beans and watched him eat every bite. And this time, she delighted in knowing her dosage was higher than the past two times. With the increased dose of poison, Mike returned to the hospital on September 4th, less than a week after leaving. This time, Mike's death seemed imminent. In constant pain, he felt terrible and doctors were still unsure what to do. But, yet again, Mike slowly recovered. By September 11th, doctors allowed him to leave. Little is known about Deborah's thought process at this time, but it's not hard to imagine Deborah enjoyed Mike's torturously slow ailment and confusing cycle of recovery. She was getting her revenge. As for Mike, his uncertainty about what was happening in his body made him uneasy. Then, Deborah's consistent readiness to nurse him back to health struck him as unusual. Given that her assistance seemed to be followed by an uptick of worsening symptoms, Mike grew more wary of Deborah's caregiving. Once again out of the hospital, Mike confided his recent troubles to a woman we'll call Elizabeth. She had been a fellow parent on the recent Peru trip, and the two had apparently sparked a romantic relationship. Since their return, they'd maintained communication, and Elizabeth insisted that Deborah had been poisoning Mike. But Mike wouldn't hear it. Though there were odd coincidences between Deborah's care and his pain, he didn't want to believe the mother of his children was capable of something so horrible. Still, his increasingly volatile home environment made it hard to see his wife in a positive light. Deborah drank heavily most nights, and her speech patterns changed. Deborah got angry at anything that crossed her path and often rambled about domestic problems and annoying daily encounters. She also complained about Mike's girlfriend, Elizabeth, and claimed she wanted the woman dead on multiple occasions. Other times, Deborah threatened to kill herself over the collapse of her marriage. On September 25, 1995, Mike called 911 after finding his wife severely inebriated at their family home. When police arrived at the house, they found Deborah lying in bed, drunk. Mike said she'd been drinking alcohol for two or three days straight. But while Deborah seemed disheveled and inebriated to the police, she wasn't violent. Technically, she didn't need medical treatment, but as a precaution, Authorities transported Deborah to an emergency room for an assessment. Meanwhile, Mike called relatives to watch the children and grabbed a few of Deborah's things to bring for her stay at the hospital. It was then that Mike informed police of a discovery he'd made just one day earlier. In Deborah's bag under the bed, Mike found syringes, vials of potassium chloride, and strangely, around 12 packets of castor beans. Since Mike was a doctor, he knew a large dosage of potassium chloride could be used to induce cardiac arrest. 
That accounted for the first two items he stumbled upon, but the castor beans had Mike flummoxed. Deborah didn't garden, and he wondered what she planned to do with them. Soon he'd find out, but unfortunately, when he did, it would already be too late. Coming up, Deborah's apparent deteriorating mental health prompts a double homicide. Hi listeners, Alastair here with a new series I think you'll really enjoy. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with? Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Discover the radical side of romance with a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the Parcast network. Track the nefarious exploits of Bonnie and Clyde, meet married mafiosos Jackie and Thelma Wright, and enter Fred and Rose West's real-life House of Horrors. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now... Back to the story. In September 1995, Dr. Deborah Green was at the end of her rope. After her husband, Mike, requested a divorce for the second time, she attempted to kill him with ricin extracted from castor beans. But her lethal intentions hadn't yielded the outcome she'd hoped for, and her subsequent binge drinking forced Mike to call 911 to protect her. It was only after Deborah went to the hospital that Mike found potassium chloride, syringes, and castor beans in one of Deborah's bags. A doctor himself, Mike knew a potassium chloride injection could induce cardiac arrest. He became even more concerned for Deborah's sanity. It was possible she was planning to kill herself. But Mike had yet to realize that she had really been planning to kill him. So when he arrived at the local hospital, Mike showed the police officers the bag of Deborah's poisons with a relative cluelessness about the mountain of evidence he sat on. Police took it, but they weren't so sure what Deborah's items meant either. If anything, the contents of Deborah's purse were merely a sign that she needed psychiatric assistance. So her physicians conducted a mental assessment. Her tending clinician, Dr. Pamela McCoy, knew not to judge Deborah's calm disposition as a sign that she was stable. And when Mike walked into her room, Deborah's quick shift in behavior gave Dr. McCoy some revealing information. 
Deborah spat on Mike and said, you will get the children over our dead bodies. In Deborah's mind, her forced detour to the hospital may have been Mike's attempt at proving her an unfit mother. Of course, it is possible Mike had attempted to sabotage Deborah, knowing they had a custody battle ahead of them. But we can't know for sure. Regardless of Mike's intentions, Deborah's threatening words toward her soon-to-be ex-husband were aggressive and measured. As a result, she was prescribed a stay at a mental health facility, Menninger Clinic. Initially, Deborah agreed, knowing she'd been under a lot of stress. But mere hours later, Deborah had a sudden change of heart and disappeared. And when Mike and her family were notified, they couldn't locate her. Luckily, authorities found her less than two hours later. It turned out that Deborah decided to walk home in nothing more than her hospital gown in the cold Kansas City weather. They picked her up by the side of the road and took her back to the hospital where she agreed to be admitted to Menninger Clinic. According to author Anne Rule in her book Bitter Harvest, A Woman's Fury, A Mother's Sacrifice, doctors at the clinic had time to diagnose her with bipolar disorder and suicidal tendencies. They prescribed her Prozac, Transine, and Clonopin to help manage her symptoms. Deborah's mental health crisis appeared serious and was diagnosed as a bipolar illness. There are two types of bipolar disorders. Type 1 presents as an agitated state of mania. Type 2 is a depressive type, which was Deborah's presentation. This subtype manifests symptoms like hopelessness, irritability, fatigue, and anxiety. Bipolar 2s also have a high tendency to abuse substances, which is noteworthy in light of Deborah's alcoholism. Deborah was treated for her bipolar disorder with three medications that were commonly prescribed in the mid-90s. However, they're not generally used today because we've recently uncovered the specific neurotransmitter responsible for this disease, which is dopamine. Deborah was treated with Prozac, a serotonin medication that doesn't correct the imbalance of dopamine associated with her mental illness. On top of this, the benzodiazepines she was given may have actually agitated her disorder and symptoms. The current treatments we use for bipolar patients are dopaminergic medicines, like lithium, for example. Latuda is another medication currently in use, and even ketamine is being investigated as a potential treatment. In severe cases, electroshock therapy has proven to be effective. Despite the fact that there's always an ongoing evolution in psychiatric treatment, demonstrated by how different Deborah's treatment regime would look today, it's always important to try to solve these issues and seek available care. And she did get care. Deborah reluctantly accepted treatment at the mental health facility. Meanwhile, Mike got to work investigating the uses of castor beans. Soon, he faced a hard revelation. The ricin in them could be enough to lethally poison someone if ingested in high quantities. Mike reflected on the bitter taste of the food Deborah had served him, something castor beans are known for. It now seemed irrefutable that Deborah had poisoned him. 
It's unclear why Mike didn't immediately go to the police with this information. Perhaps he didn't believe he had enough physical evidence. Alternatively, he may have been holding out on a more ideal time to invoke the information and catch Deborah by surprise. Whatever the case, Mike wasn't completely resigned with his discovery. He decided it would be safest for him to move out of the house. Just four days after Deborah was admitted to the mental clinic, she had herself checked out, and Mike found a cheap apartment halfway between work and his children's school. For a short time in October 1995, it seemed that things were more balanced than they'd been. With Mike away from the home, Deborah wasn't erupting as frequently. The two behaved cordially on the phone together and successfully coordinated their schedules with the children, who were 13, 10, and 6. The young kids needed both their parents frequently. Despite this, Mike never considered returning for one second. Mike said he'd heard from other parents at the children's school that they'd noticed something wrong with Deborah. They smelled alcohol on her breath and saw how despondent she seemed to be. Deborah still seemed to indulge in alcohol during this time, a choice that could have been highly dangerous given that she was also on mental health medications. In addition, Deborah's nice gal act with Mike was only a front. When the kids asked him questions about his relationship with Elizabeth, he learned Deborah had been feeding them more lies, that everything wrong in the family was their father's fault. She even explicitly told them Mike was sleeping with Elizabeth. Unfortunately, Mike couldn't do much to sway their resentments. Deborah had already informed their opinions of their father, and when the kids spent time with him, Mike sensed they didn't want to be there. So, in turn, Mike decided he was done being a peacekeeper. If Deborah didn't want to play nicely, he wouldn't either. One night in mid-October, he called her and let out all the anger and frustration he'd held inside for decades. He told Deborah of her failings as a doctor and a mother, a blow he knew would hit where it hurt most. As a result, Deborah appeared to spiral once more. But this time, there would be no stopping her. On the afternoon of October 23rd, Mike picked up two of his children to take them to his oldest son, Tim's hockey game. Afterwards, Mike tried to converse with them on the drive home, but the growing resentment Deborah had planted in them seemed to strain their interactions. Though Mike was only just starting to talk to lawyers about his plan to divorce his wife, he grieved the fact that he'd already lost so much of his children's love. As he pulled up to the family home, the home he'd once seen as a beacon of hope in his marriage, he felt only sadness. After the kids hopped out of the car, he told them he'd see them later in the week. As he drove away, he silently resolved that one day he'd tell the children his side of the story. Unfortunately, that day would never come. 
Later that night, Deborah called Mike for reasons that aren't entirely clear, and the pair got into several heated arguments, which escalated dramatically as they each cited their many grievances. By the end of it, Mike angrily confessed that he knew she tried to poison him. He then threatened that if Deborah didn't correct her substance abuse problems, he'd call the authorities. By the time the conversation ended, it was after 11.40 p.m., and Mike wanted to get some sleep. But while Mike got ready for bed a few miles away, Deborah sat in her room and ruminated over the course of her life, wondering how it all went so wrong. She likely told herself that Mike was to blame for her anguish, that he was the reason she didn't pass her board certification, that he was the reason her family life had failed. And it was likely in this state of existential dread that Deborah devised a lethal plan that would absolve her of her past and its disappointing outcomes. She'd get a fresh start. With a sudden impulse, she rose and grabbed an accelerant. She poured the liquid all along the stairs leading to the second floor where her children were sleeping, then on the first floor. She lit a fire. The flames spread across the floor and the stairs before licking up the walls. As her home burned, Deborah walked outside. Smoke billowed throughout the house as Deborah stood outside, and because of the accelerant, the fire spread rapidly, right to the children's bedrooms. According to the police investigation, 13-year-old Tim called out to Deborah through the house's intercom system once the fire reached his upstairs bedroom. In response, Deborah told Tim to wait there until firefighters arrived to rescue him. However, Tim could have climbed out of his window onto the second floor roof and down to the yard. He'd gotten out that way before and Deborah knew it. He might have escaped if it weren't for his mother's instruction to stay put. To many who worked on the case, Deborah's advice seemed like an act of malice. In another room, six-year-old Kelly slept, unaware she was in harm's way. Meanwhile, the middle child, Kate, quickly dialed 911 before climbing out of the window and over the garage. In her pajamas, the 10-year-old stood on top of the garage, terrified. She didn't know if she could jump and felt too scared. But Deborah saw Kate and called out to her. Deborah said she needed to jump down and promised to catch her. Hesitant, Kate swallowed her fear and leapt. Deborah did not catch her. Luckily, Kate suffered no serious injuries when she tumbled to the ground. When the police and fire departments arrived, they found a panicked Kate clutching her mum. She screamed at the firefighters to help save her siblings. As Kate pleaded, Deborah seemed to look past it all. It was as though her eyes were focused on something hundreds of yards away. There was no panic, only a distant stare. 
perhaps she realized that she'd done something that would have a permanent impact on the rest of her life. Mike received a call from a neighbor at 12.30 a.m. shortly after the fire broke out. He raced to the scene. When he arrived minutes later, he spotted Deborah and Kate standing outside the raging inferno that had engulfed his house. In that moment, he suffered a difficult realization. Neither 13-year-old Tim nor 6-year-old Kelly had survived. He wept in pain. But as grief overtook him, he couldn't help but experience a second feeling. Rage. There was no doubt in his mind that Deborah had a hand in the tragedy. Coming up, Deborah faces the consequences. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. Around 4 a.m. on October 24, 1995, authorities brought 44-year-old Deborah Green into the police station for questioning. Investigators wanted to get to the bottom of her family's house fire. When they asked Deborah what happened, she claimed that she'd fallen asleep with the door closed, only to wake to a blaring smoke alarm. When she threw open the door, she found a smoke-choked hallway and had no way to reach her children. So she slammed the door shut and escaped out of her room through the sliding glass door that led outside. The investigators noted that Deborah seemed distant in her telling of events, as if she was talking about someone else's life. They found it odd that Deborah didn't seem panicked about that night's events, nor grief-stricken by the loss of her children. It took her over an hour after authorities first arrived to ask about Tim and Kelly. Even then, her requests didn't feel urgent. Strangely, she referred to everything immediately in the past tense, as if her children were long dead. But at that point, she couldn't have known if they'd survived or not. Around the same time, investigators were going through the rubble. There, they found the bodies of 13-year-old Tim and 6-year-old Kelly. They located Tim in the living room of the first floor, while Kelly 
still laid in her bed. She'd slept through the entire ordeal, dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. Investigators theorized that Tim had crawled onto the floor of his second-story bedroom before losing consciousness and then fell to the first floor after the blaze weakened the house. While his body has significant burns, a coroner's report later said that these were mostly post-mortem. The effects of smoke inhalation on the body are really significant. In order for a fire to sustain itself, it needs to suck up oxygen from the environment. When a fire spreads in an enclosed space, like within a house, it takes up most of the available oxygen people need to breathe and stay conscious. When we're outside in normal conditions, the natural oxygen level in the air is about 21%. In an environment where oxygen levels decrease to about 9%, people usually become unconscious and die when oxygen levels reach about 6%. Death from insufficient oxygen here is a result of respiratory and cardiac arrest. On top of this, the resulting smoke from a fire is composed of a ton of toxic chemicals and particulates that invade the air passages and lungs. The bulk of this smoke, however, is carbon monoxide, a tasteless, odorless, and colorless gas that results from the incomplete burning of materials containing carbon, like wood, and other materials used to build homes. When carbon monoxide is inhaled, the lungs pass it into the bloodstream where it sticks to hemoglobin molecules. These hemoglobin molecules, which supply oxygen to the body's vital organs, are unable to function when carbon monoxide is attached to them. As a result, the cells that make up our vital organs, like the heart and brain, start to suffocate and die. Loss of consciousness and death from smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning takes anywhere from a few minutes to an hour, depending on the level of exposure and someone's overall health and age. Young children and the elderly, for example, are at a higher risk because their lungs are less developed or more vulnerable. In regard to what happened in the greenhouse, Tim's final moments were, unfortunately, most likely filled with fear before he passed out and eventually died. His little sister Kelly, on the other hand, most likely felt no suffering as she was asleep when the carbon monoxide poisoning rendered her unconscious before taking her life. Once their deaths were confirmed, a detective entered the interrogation room and informed Deborah of Tim and Kelly's fates. Deborah erupted in cries of sorrow, but to the investigators, everything seemed canned, as if she planned for the moment. Before long, she became furious at the police for withholding information about her children. Only, they hadn't hidden anything. They just found out themselves moments before. From that point, the interview was effectively over. Deborah berated them more and stormed out. But she had no home and no one to go to. She reached out to Mike for a place to stay, but he didn't care to see her. He gave her a few hundred dollars for a hotel room and left. The day after the fire, Mike filed for divorce and requested custody of his only remaining child, Kate. He knew in his heart Deborah was responsible for the fire. 
the words she said on September 25th echoed through his head. You will get the children over our dead bodies. Deborah was evidently more concerned with punishing her husband after their heated phone call the night of the fire than the lives of her children. As the investigation into the house fire continued, that fact became abundantly clear. During an initial sweep of the house on October 24th, a Labrador sniffer dog named Avon detected the presence of an accelerant. Fire investigator Jeff Hudson and his team noticed what they called pore patterns throughout the ground floor. In a typical accidental fire, there is normally only one place of ignition. However, the pore patterns indicated there were several sites where the fire started. By the large pore patterns, detectives assumed anywhere between 3 and 10 gallons of accelerant were used that night. Oddly, the accelerant stopped right at the threshold of Deborah's bedroom. And by reading the burn patterns, they surmised that her door was never closed that night. The fire was no accident. Unbeknownst to Deborah, on October 26, 1995, the criminal investigation began. While authorities had their suspicions about Deborah, they wanted to be thorough. So they looked into the background of every close family member. They even sent agents to the joint funeral of both children on October 27th to look for any odd behavior from those in attendance. And while most there were quietly grieving, Deborah flew into another fit of rage. Deborah yelled at the funeral home staff about anything and everything she found undesirable. Her anger was so fierce that at one point her own parents stepped in to tell her to calm down. Deborah experienced a rash of emotion in the wake of her children's deaths as her body and mind were reacting to the tragic circumstances. It's sort of a cliche to say this, but everyone reacts to grief differently. Although there's been some controversy about the lack of empirical evidence in her work, in my own experience, I feel that Dr. Kubler-Ross's expertise and writings on grief is indicative of the way people behave when dealing with loss. She initially laid out five stages that people generally go through when confronted with their own terminal illnesses, and found that these same phases are largely applicable to people dealing with the loss of loved ones as well. Anger is one of these stages, and this is clearly what Deborah experienced during the funeral. There's also a big possibility that her furious anger was associated with and fueled by a guilty conscience. On a biological level, the stress of grief creates a release of cortisol or the stress hormone. This rise in cortisol affects the limbic system or the collection of brain structures that regulate our emotions. Deborah's grief likely impaired her cognition, which led her to increased irritability and a heightened tendency towards outbursts of rage. But Deborah may have been mad for another reason as well. Mike had planned the funeral. Authorities were quick to pick up on this information and the conflict between the former couple. So, as the weeks went on and the investigation continued, detectives questioned Mike's role in it all. Talking with him 
They quickly ruled him out as a suspect because of his airtight alibi. He was with his girlfriend Elizabeth the night of the fire. During the interrogation, Mike talked about his and Deborah's contentious relationship. He methodically highlighted all her outbursts and then dropped a bombshell. He explained his recent medical problems and his discovery of castor beans in Deborah's bag. Hearing this, they asked for a blood sample to see if Mike tested positive for ricin antibodies. While waiting for those results, they found more damning evidence against Deborah. Among the items gathered at the fire-ravaged home was a copy of a book called Necessary Lies that dealt with children dying in a house fire which was said to be set by the female protagonist. Investigators also discovered that a sample of Deborah's hair they'd taken showed signs of singeing. This meant that her story of leaving right after she saw smoke was untrue. In most arson cases, when an accelerant is lit, it causes an intense quick rush of flames. These flames usually cause some sort of superficial damage to the arsonist, like singed hair. But the discoveries didn't end there. By mid-November, police had consulted toxicologists about Deborah's alleged attempts on Mike's life. As they waited for his blood test to come back, it was becoming more and more apparent that Deborah had tried to poison her husband. This corroborated her willingness to set her family's home ablaze. So, on November 22nd, less than a month after the fire, police arrested Deborah and took her into custody. A judge set her bail at a county record $3 million, meaning she couldn't afford to live free while awaiting trial. Still, in prison, she professed her innocence. In January of 1996, both the prosecution and defense presented their arguments in front of a judge at the pre-trial show-cause hearing. While no judgment could be made, all evidence was brought forth. The defense suggested that it wasn't Deborah who set the fire or poisoned Mike, but Tim, their deceased 13-year-old son. But the defense had little to back up their claims. The prosecution presented their wealth of evidence, including Deborah's inconsistent story and the receipts she kept from buying the castor beans. It was enough to discredit the defense's theory and Deborah's case was sent to criminal trial. There, she faced felony charges. Months later, when the prosecution hinted that they were trying for the death penalty, Deborah and her lawyers agreed to a plea bargain. On April 17, 1996, Deborah pled no contest to capital murder and aggravated arson charges. On May 30th, a judge handed down two concurrent hard 40 sentences. That is, she would spend at least the next 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole. For Mike, this was just the first step in trying to get any semblance of a life back. He'd gone back to work as a doctor, but the loss of his children shattered him. Nothing 
would ever get him back to normal. But knowing that Deborah couldn't hurt anyone else helped. Not that she didn't try for the opportunity. Behind bars, Deborah wanted control of her life and filed several motions to get out. In 2000, Deborah's lawyers questioned if she'd been mentally healthy enough to plead guilty. But in this case, Mike and the rest of the family were spared the trauma of deliberating over Deborah's guilt again. Deborah withdrew her motion when she found out that if there was a new trial, she'd be up for the death penalty. Several years later, she tried questioning the validity of the arson investigator's report. However, her argument fell well short of casting reasonable doubt on the findings, and she remained in prison. Deborah's case is definitely a tragic one. It's very difficult to imagine how anyone could sacrifice their own children in order to get revenge on their significant other, no matter the circumstances. This case differs from our other medical murder tales in that Deborah Green is the first person we've discussed who attempted to kill using ricin. While she used her medical knowledge to poison her husband, her murders were motivated by a personal vendetta rather than a general impulse to kill. It's clear that her problems with fostering healthy relationships went far beyond her inability to work professionally with others. These issues bled into her marriage, her parenting, and ultimately into the relationship she had with herself. Ultimately, Deborah's motives and mental illness make her no less guilty of the heinous crimes she committed. Today, Deborah Green remains in jail unable to apply for parole for another 15 years. Her once promising life burned to the ground over the bitterness of her failed quest for perfection. And unfortunately, those closest to her paid the price. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thanks very much, Alistair. For more information on Deborah, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bitter Harvest, A Woman's Fury, A Mother's Sacrifice by Anne Rule, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast shows, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trickvedotir, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. 
From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.